How's it going, everyone? Today's special guest is our good friend, Chris Casabasa. Chris is a master martial artist, author of an incredible book called Bullyproof Fitness. And you guys may know him from the uh, movie Mortal Kombat and the subsequent television show playing the legendary Scorpion. So it's great to uh, have you on here today, Chris. Thanks for having me on, John. Awesome. I know uh, it's been kind of crazy for you operating schools and teaching and doing what you do out in California, but can you kind of talk through how that has kind of affected your kind of mental kind of, there must be some mental hurdles for you every day to be a leader instructor for kids and uh, people in your classes, but you also have to deal with the state pushback. Yeah, there's there actually has been a lot going on. And obviously our number one concern besides keeping our studios open is keeping our members safe. Right. And, you know, we've we've jumped through every hoop and every uh, every protocol that the, the CDC and the local state governments have asked of us. So um, to keep them safe, because obviously we don't want anybody getting sick. We don't want to get sick. Um, so it's you know, it's been a, it's been a challenge. But listen, we've been able to do it. Uh, fortunately, you know, our studios are very open and spacious, so there's plenty of room for people in there. Uh, once you put a mask on and have that six foot separation, like it's pretty easy. And, uh, you know, it's been working. It's been working. Has it been tough for you teaching the younger generation of kids and students going through kind of like this COVID thing? Because obviously we don't have the answers. The adults are dealing with it. But as kids, they're there to learn from you. But have you noticed anything kind of different for them psychologically in terms of the mask and the social distancing? Well, we started to, but it's all in the framing, right? So what we did was we said, listen, it's not that you have to wear a mask. It's that we've now set a new challenge in front of you. Becoming a black belt is not an easy path. So this is a new challenge on your path to black belt. You can choose to be knocked down by it, or you can choose to rise up and conquer and go through it. And then we just kind of use the analogy of like some of the best pro athletes in the world wear oxygen deprivation masks to help enhance their training, whether they're long distance runners or pro basketball players or Olympic athletes. They actually use this as kind of a ninja hack to make their endurance better. So when we framed it like that for the kids and put it on them, like not, it's not a, it's not a have to, this is something that you're going to want to do to make your path to black belt even better. The psychology shift in their minds and their, in their attitude completely changed. I love that. Have you, and obviously we'll talk about your book uh, a little bit too, but have mm -hmm. you had the urge to kind of go back into that book and kind of add some stuff like you just mentioned where these different hurdles and stuff that you can still eat smart, you can still stay fit, you can still do what you do, but with these new hurdles, that, that doesn't change. It's just another hurdle. Yeah, well, to your question, I am in the process of writing a follow-up to that book. I call awesome. Bulletproof Life. Bullyproof life, how to live, how to live your life, uh, bullyproof, fit and strong. So uh, I'm hoping to have that out uh, in the spring of next year. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I've got my hands full uh, running our company and, and doing a million other things with the with the pandemic. But I actually have probably 80 percent of that book already done and written. That's awesome. Yeah. So you you were born and raised or born in Pennsylvania. Your dad had two successful uh, studios places there, but you decided to go to California. What was what was your dad's reasoning for moving back out there if you already had something successful in Pennsylvania? <laughs> the weather. He literally <laughs> got, tired. He got tired of the cold and the snow. Uh, a friend of his had moved out to California a few years prior to him coming out, and he came out to visit. And once he came out to visit, he came back and said, we are moving to California. I love that. Did yeah. anything change on his end in terms of teaching? Obviously, different people, different coasts. Like, was there anything he had to change to be successful out there? Um, you know, I actually, I don't know. I was very young when it happened. This was way back in the early 1970s when we made the shift from from Pennsylvania to, to California. So, I was only five, maybe six years old. Uh, so, I, I don't necessarily recall or remember. Was there a time when you're growing up where, obviously, your dad's this legendary instructor and martial artist. Was there ever... Did you feel obligated to jump into martial arts? No, I did not. It was my dad actually did a really uh, reverse ninja hack on me. He just said, "Hey, <clears throat> if you want to start training in the martial arts, you can, but the deal is you cannot stop until you become a black belt." Now, when you're four years old, you're like, "I, I don't care. I don't even know what that means." 
I just knew I wanted to be around my dad. My dad was my hero. He still is to this day. And, you know, I knew he was at the studio a lot. So I figured, well, if I'm going to see him more, I'll be doing that karate stuff. And it actually looked kind of cool, you know, people jumping around, kicking and punching and, and doing neat stuff. So, um, you know, he never really made me do it. He said, if you want to do it, you just, so he had taught me discipline, discipline, dedication at a very early age. Cause there were times on the path to black belt that I wanted, I wanted to quit. And listen, I, I tell the story a lot, uh, especially to my students. I failed my very first black belt test. Wow. So yeah, I had the opportunity to make black belt when I was nine, but I didn't practice because my dad was my teacher and I go, well, he's going to pass me. He's my dad. He failed me. And I, and rightly so I didn't practice. I wasn't ready. I didn't do a good job at my test. And, uh, you know, it taught me a lot of life lessons about if you want something worthwhile, you got to work hard to go get it. And then when it came, as I got older and I, you know, 16, 17 years old, I started taking an interest in teaching and training. You know, he always told me, you don't have to do this. You know, you can choose to do whatever it is that you want to do in life. But I was, you know, I was hooked on it and I knew that it was always something I, I wanted to do. Now you have kids too. So is this something that will be full circle where you kind of do the reverse ninja on them or do, are they already immersed in the uh, programs? Uh, both of my kids are black belts. Um, yeah, I have a awesome. one. Yeah. And, you know, I essentially made the same deal with them. My dad made with me. And I, you can try. You know, they wanted to be around dad, but you can't quit. So they make black belt. And you know, they both had times where they wanted to quit. And, and my wife and I went back and forth, round and round about them. Oh, they don't want to go. You can't force them. I said, just get in the door. I'll do the rest. And that's really the same conversation I have with any parent that has their kids in the martial arts. That, you know, the path to black belt is easy and they're going to want to quit. But guess what? Life isn't easy either. And you're going right. to want to give up and want to quit. So the skill, the discipline, the focus, the dedication to achieving a goal that you learn in the martial arts will serve you well in life. Now, listen, both of my kids right now are black belts. My daughter's getting ready to test for her third degree of black belt. Wow. Um, she, you know, she's 19 now. My son's 16. But neither one of them have really expressed an interest in teaching or working in the studios. You know, my, my daughter wants to be a police officer, detective. Uh, kind of like my dad was. So talk about full circle. My, before my dad uh, opened martial arts schools, he was a cop back in Pennsylvania. Wow. He, he, he joined the police force. So uh, she she wants to do that. My son uh, apparently wants to be a professional esports gamer, which you know, is fine. <laughs> it's a big industry now. <laughs> it's huge. And, uh, you know, and we'll see. So things can change and, and things can go. But you know, back to the parents with the kids thing, and, and I'm going to get up on a soapbox here for just a second. I, actually I, love, I love it. I carry cover this in my book a little bit, and that is, if you can see me right now, or you can hear my voice, and you have a daughter, it is your civic duty to get your daughter involved in some kind of activity that will give her confidence and self-esteem. Now, obviously, I'm going to say martial arts, but gymnastics, even ballet, it's posture, it's poise, it's the way a female carries themselves. Listen, one in three women in the United States, one in three will be attacked or sexually assaulted in their lifetime. That is a horrible statistic. And I'm not making up, Those are that's real data, according to the FBI and everybody that tracks those things. One in three, for guys, for me and you, John, it's yeah. one in a hundred. Right. That's a huge gap in the thing. That's, so it's not a matter of, of if for a female, it's a matter of when. So if you have a daughter and you don't do something that's going to help to empower them to get them strong, because listen, the FBI interviewed, you know, a lot of their, their sexual assault and rape uh, victim or attackers and what they found out over time, because they asked them, why, why did you do this? Why did you attack that person? One of the number one answers that came up was they didn't look confident. They looked unaware or afraid. It's a predatory thing. So if you can change your posture, if you can change the way you make eye contact with somebody, again, things you all, you learn in the martial arts or hell, even in modeling, you know what I mean? Or, or cheerleading, like you've got to have this, this good, confident posture. If you have a girl, you have a daughter, you've got to do something. Take proactive action because it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Now, my daughter, I told you she's 19, she's getting ready to test for a third degree black belt. Fortunately, in her life so far, nothing's happened. Daddy's been around, right? I'm the I'm the big lion that's protecting my daughter. Right. She's off to college now. Dad's not around. So, and I and listen. I hope nothing ever really happens to my daughter, and I I, I pray for that. And I hope, but if it does, I would hope to be a fly on the wall just to watch my daughter whip this guy's ass. Right. 
right? Because I know I have that much confidence in her and I've trained her for these moments. So if and when it happens to her, she'll know what to do. You know, and again, I hope nothing, you know, nobody wants anything bad to happen to their kids. But I know my daughter is as prepared as she can be for that moment. Right. You kind of hit on the, the domestic violence and the rape and stuff. But an interesting thing I realized, I talked to some police friends who were like the um, work with like the FBI about statistics. And they like, yeah, John, the number of school shootings obviously has gone down because kids are in school. But right. when you get home, the number of domestic violence cases what they are reported has gone up with abusive parents or alcoholism or suicide. And so you add this now, it's like how important is something like what you're trying to do for these kids to kind of like appreciate that, Hey, there's someone out here who could still kind of still wants to help out, even though times are tough, there's no school that interaction for these kids that must, it has to be life-saving. It, you know, it really is. And and that's one of the reasons why we're out there doing what we're doing. Listen, right now, you know, martial arts is probably one of the only games in town. You know, football's done. You can't, there's no, and except for pro level stuff, you know, there's no, there's no regional soccer or little league or football or anything going on basketball. There's nothing for these kids to use as an outlet to get out of the house. And, and that's again, where Marlowe becomes a win and a benefit is they're, they're being able to get out of the house and to interact with other people, with their instructors and, and to get a sense of. Ah. Right. Is there any, is there a challenge for you um, as opposed to being a teacher versus being a father? Now, how are you able to kind of differentiate that from where you're at the gym versus Hey, clean your dishes at the house. Like, how do you how do you mitigate all that? Well, I mean, listen, Mike, I, I, I've got two really good kids that right. are they're they're kind and respectful and loving and listen. No kid's perfect, and and we have family right. arguments like everybody does. Um, you know, the family arguments in our house are are usually put your hands up. <laughs> no, <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't do that. believe it or not, my wife does most of the the structure and the discipline at the house, so. She handles that while while I'm away working. But listen, I again, I've got two really good kids. That my daughter, who's like I said, uh, in college now, is very independent um, and grows to a very mature woman uh, at a very early age. So she's she's doing great. My son is. Yeah. It's not. We don't have so much of a problem. We're we're kind of, I guess, one of the lucky ones. I would say. Gotcha. I grew up in a house where my parents were always coaches, and I always, I what I loved about being the, the games and stuff is that they treated me like a normal like a kid that wasn't their own. I've always respected people, instructors, teachers, that if you have a sibling or kid out there that you are, they're just one of the people you're teaching. I like that difference of uh, whatever. And they yeah, still I'll tell you, that's that really is something that's difficult, you know, because your kid is always, in your eyes, the best. So when my kids are in class with me, it's hard for me to not favor them, to not, oh, look at look how good she's doing, look how good he's doing. And then what happens is sometimes I, I skew that the other way and I'll get home and my kids will be like, you didn't even say anything good about me. And you didn't even say I was doing good in, in my heart. Like, I'm so proud of them. And I, I'm like, oh, my God, that my daughter is like one of the best ones in my class. But then you you run that back and forth of if I say that, then everybody goes, oh, well, that's Shihan's daughter. And of course, he's going to say something nice about her. But they let me hear it. If I don't if I don't give them enough praise or if I don't talk to them, they, they let me hear it when I get home. Is it hard for you to as a teacher? If someone's there, hey, I just want to get the black belt and say I have it, put it on my resume. Do you find those people are tough to teach because they don't really appreciate the history and the lineage and what your teaching is all about? Sorry, I missed the first part. If, if I No, it, is it tough to teach kids or it, uh, even adults who's like, I'm only here to get the black belt. I don't care about the history. I don't care about the lineage. I don't care about the whatever. I just want the resume thing. Is oh, it no. tough for you? No, it's not, it's not hard at all because once we immerse them in our culture, like it becomes irrelevant. Okay. You know, if you want to become a black belt, you're going to. We're going to get you there. You'll put it on your resume. But to become a black belt, you've got to learn A, B, and C. I like that. Right? If you're coming in just to learn how to beat people up, then you're definitely in the wrong place. And if you're just coming in to get a belt so it looks cool on you for your for your headshot, you know, so you can <laughs> book a movie, then you're definitely in the wrong place as well. So when your father starts Red Dragon Karate, kind of what is Red Dragon Karate? And as he's gone through the years with you kind of, taking the mantle of teaching. Have you added anything to that program or has this been something that's been since the beginning? 
one of the great things about our style is that it constantly evolves and changes. And it's one of the things that's really attracted me to it. And listen, I, I've been able to travel the world. I've worked out with some of the greatest martial artists on the planet, uh, whether it's been in film or in their studios. So I've been very fortunate and I've seen all the other martial arts styles for the most part. I mean, there's thousands of them, so I couldn't possibly see them all. But one of the things I like about our style is the evolution and the adaptability of it. Like, in, and you know already, my dad has black belts in 10 different styles of martial arts. And in the 1960s, he did something that was unheard of. He took all those styles and combined them into one, right? So in, well, it's not in my opinion, it's pretty much fact. In, in America, our system, Red Dragon Karate, is one of the original mixed martial arts styles in the world. We were doing it before it was cool. We were doing it before the UFC was even thought of. So nowadays I could throw a rock from where I'm sitting and hit a mixed martial arts school. But back in the day, in the early, in the early 1960s, especially, there was a very strict unwritten rule of you were either a Japanese stylist or a Korean stylist or an Okinawan stylist or a Chinese stylist. You didn't combine those, right? It's that right. old, it's the old Ghostbuster thing. Don't cross the streams. Well, my dad crossed the streams. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why our system and style has lasted and evolved for as long as it has, because my dad, in my opinion, is like a Michelangelo of the martial arts. He's always creating. He's always taking, all right, we're going to move this. We're going to take this move out. We're going to take this weapon. We're going to move this here. And it's like a puzzle piece to him and it's kept us evolving. So to, to your question, our style in the 1960s is completely different from the 2020 version of it. Fascinating. The core components of it, the structure, the discipline, the respect, that's all there. But the moves that I learned to become a black belt in Red Dragon Karate at the age of 10 are probably 90% different than what a student who becomes a black belt today is. doesn't mean one's worse and one's better. It's just the evolution of the style itself. And your family must be so proud because on the top of my head, there's not many. I know Pat Militich has Militich fighting systems, and then you guys with Red Dragon. There's not many American-based fighting systems created in America that you guys have been able to. And it's it must be very. Do you ever sit back and kind of you see a kid graduate or get a black belt, or your daughter get to the third degree, and you're kind of like, man, this is so cool. What my father started uh, every day. <laughs> every day. Listen, I, I thank my lucky stars that that not only do we have a great martial arts system, but the business system that we have wrapped inside of what we do. I mean, that's, in my opinion, from what I've seen, it's the best one-two punch for success that I've ever seen in our industry, right? So it's not about, listen, I told you earlier, I have met and trained with some of the greatest martial artists on the planet. Many of them are just flat-ass broke. They, are, interesting. They, they are great martial artists, but they can't communicate that in a way that makes other people want to be around them more or to pay them on a consistent regular basis, they haven't turned it into a business. And listen, that may not, may or may not have been their thing, but we were able to successfully combine and marry those two things without selling out and without watering down our style or our system. Right. Yeah. It's fascinating how obviously talking to you, reading your book and getting to know you, you have a confidence that a lot of people don't have. Yes. You're this great martial artist, but you're able to walk into a room full of business nerds or football jocks or whatever. It's still get your message a point where it's like, this is vital information that everyone could use. And for you to able to find, find that niche to free what you do, is pretty amazing. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. And really it's all, it's all systems based, right? Systems run business. And whether that business is a coffee shop or karate school, the system behind it doesn't necessarily deviate service your customer, provide a great product at a, at a price that's going to turn a profit and make the customer happy. And you've got an ongoing business model. And a lot of people overlook that because they put too much on one of those things or the other of those things and not enough on the, the what we call the trifecta of success. If you're having like a bad day or like try, you have this mental hurdle or you need to be motivated, do you read to like listen or check out other people like Tony Robbins or other motivational speakers to get motivated or you always find that inner kind of motivation to keep going no I, I i try and get motivation from a lot of different sources actually uh you know if i'm having a bad day i just usually reach for my bottle of uh, johnny walker blue yeah but perfect <laughs> no i'm kidding, I'm kidding. Uh, 
But yeah, uh, you know, Dean Graziosi, I like. Uh, Tony Robbins, of course, is is legendary. Um, one of the guys that I really uh, admire, look up to, is Gary Vaynerchuk. Yes. And, uh, yeah, he's very inspirational, and because. I mean, I don't think he's a martial artist, but he's got a kind of a martial arts fighting spirit of go, go, go. Oh. Don't do this. Do the work. Basically, his whole motto is do the work, be patient, get your results. And if you do the work and you're patient, you're not getting results, you're in the wrong thing. Pivot. Like go do try something else, you know, because life is long. It's not a, it's not a short time. And, and, and the messaging that he puts out, uh, I'm really a big fan of. You're a four-time national champion, two-time national weapons champion. Besides the weapons, obviously, what is the biggest difference between Forbes and weapons, kind of like those competitions? Well, the weapons adds another level of the form. Production. Yeah, okay. and uh, focus in it because you know now you're not using your hands and your feet. You got a weapon spinning around, or, or you're moving and striking and hitting with. So it's a it's a more difficult thing to do. Uh, than the open hand stuff. Right. I've always fascinated by it. I've obviously, you're friends with Keith Cook and when he's talking about the wushu and the weapon, I'm kind of blown away by that someone can have so much control. They basically treat that weapon as an like extension of their arms or legs. It's very fascinating, some of those videos you guys put out there. Yeah, listen, Keith is, Keith's awesome, man, and he is great. And he was uh, he he was a champion before, before me, right? He was one of the guys that I actually looked up to when I started competing on the pro circuit. Uh, and he makes two of the two of the most difficult weapons that I've ever used are two weapons that he makes look really easy, and that is the iron whip chain and the three sectional staff, which are, are Chinese based weapons. But they, I mean, he's you know I'm a big fan of Keith. He's awesome. Yeah, he's a good guy. So you're doing all this stuff, championships and training and getting your black belts. At what point were you kind of like? Man, or did someone approach you and be like, "Hey, let's get this guy at movies," or "This guy's got a look"? Or how do you how do you get to that point in your life? So that's actually a really good question. Um, I got, and I'll back it up. When I was younger, I looked up to my dad and Bruce Lee. Right, Bruce Lee was on TV and in the movies, and and every kid that started martial arts in my era wanted to be Bruce Lee, and then uh, Chuck Norris. So I was a big fan of that. And I was like, wow, that'd be cool to do that. To be able to do martial arts in the movies would be cool. And we used to make these home movies, me and my brothers. Uh, there was a big field across the street and we used to make these like ninja fighting movies and all that stuff. So I, I kind of had the bug at a, at a young age. But while I was on the pro tour, it was still something like I knew I wasn't going to compete professionally forever. And I figured, well, I'll compete and, you know, do my best. And at that point, you know, I was already the number one competitor in the country. And I thought, okay, well, it'd be cool to get into the movies or TV shows. Well, uh, at one tournament that I that I won the overall championship at, which was called the Battle of Atlanta in Atlanta, Georgia, in the audience that night, unbeknownst to me, there were producers who were scouting for a TV series that they were putting together about martial artists. And you know, after I won that night, they came up to me and a few of the other guys who had won different categories and said, hey, we're doing a TV show. Would you guys be interested in doing it? And we were like, of course, you know, we would. And then as the industry goes, you don't hear from people. So, you know, after three months, we didn't hear anything. So we just thought it was, you know, one of those pie in the sky or maybe they weren't even producers to begin with. But then after about six months, we got a phone call that says, hey, uh, you know, we met you in Atlanta. We, we really liked what you did. We want you to come down and, and we're going to shoot a pilot uh, episode at Universal Studios in Orlando. And that that TV show ended up becoming WMAC Masters. So it was uh, it was pretty fortuitous that uh, that I did it. And that was, you know a bigger entry point into the TV and movie industry that I had. I had done some, some work earlier in my career, like when the, there was a, the big ninja fad that happened in the eighties. Uh, one of my dad's really good friends was Shokazugi, who was like the ninja, ninja at the time. So I got to be like little tiny bit parts in those movies and things like that. So it was an ongoing process. That's why, you know, people go, Oh, it's so great. You know, you, wow. You, you were in Mortal Kombat. Wow. You're in Batman and Robin, but like the martial arts, I didn't start there. I started right. I started as background, you know, fighting. I started as just guy walking by the camera going, you know, I had little tiny bit parts before I, before I had a big breakthrough, but it was just persistence and, and following through on the goal. Well, kind of surprised me if talking about those bit roles, I did a talk with Richard Orr and I did with Keith Cook and both times I was talking about how like Billy Black was in part two and stuff. And then Keith was like, well, you realize Chris was one of the guys in China O'Brien won. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, so sure enough, I looked it up. It's like you were playing like that picnic punk guy. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. 
picnic punk number two. <laughs> yeah, and, that's, that's then, cool. That's cool. Hey, so, listen, you know, you know, you have a small part in a movie when you're the name of your character is Picnic Punk Two. Yeah, I think there were like seven of them, so you were definitely up there. Yeah, you were more punk than everyone else. So, how do we kind of you do all this stuff, the masters? How do you get set picked to do the Mortal Kombat? So I will tell you a, a cool movie thing that I learned. In the movie world, it's not who knows you. Or it's not who you know. It's who knows you. That's what it is. Okay? When I was working on WMAC Masters, I had the opportunity to meet some of the stunt coordinators and fight coordinators uh, that they had on the show. And once a show is over, everyone goes their separate ways. Well, these guys went on to other projects. And again, bringing it back full circle, when my dad told me when I started getting into the business, he said, listen, Chris, here's what you need to do. When you're on the set and they're telling you what to do, you look in their eyes and you say, yes, sir. And no, sir. And you do what they tell you to do because they know that business and you don't. He goes, when you become famous and you have a million dollars in the bank and they tell you what to do on set, you look in their eyes and you say, yes, sir. But do you think we could try it this way? So he gave me some really good advice that served me well because I was always doing my best to be kind and respectful to everyone I met on the set. So these people went on to other sets and other projects and like anything, they were scaling up. So I would get phone calls from these people who, hey, we remember working with you on so-and-so. Would you like to come out and try this? So I would go in get the audition based on the people that I met who knew me, not necessarily who I knew. Were you familiar with the game before you got cast or like, how do you like, I sure was. Okay. Okay. My favorite character in mortal Kombat was Raiden and Scorpion in that order. I was a huge, wow. like the lightning bolts and flying across the screen. Like I was, Raiden was my guy and Scorpion was my number two guy. So to be able to, to have the opportunity to play Scorpion in the film franchise was, I mean, it was a, a childhood dream come true for me. And at what point did you realize that this would be an iconic role? And I mean, the whole now, I think part 11 just came out, it's still a worldwide phenomenon. At what point did you realize that, man, I'm part of something that is gonna go down as an iconic character of all video games? The answer is about a year after the movie came out. That's that's really when I realized it. Like I knew that Scorpion was a popular character and I knew the game had had worldwide success already. But after a year of the movie, for, because here's here's the real truth of this is our movie was not anticipated to be number one. Right. Other other video game based movies had come out and they all tanked Street Fighter, Double Dragon, I think there was one or two others. They tanked at the box office. So our expectations were very low. But the production team on Mortal Kombat did something smart. They got the best martial artist that they could get to do justice to the fighting in the film so that it was as true to the game as possible. And that's something uh, that we tried to keep on going. And because I knew I was going to be doing Scorpion, I already knew all his moves. And then of course, I had our style in our system. And I go, wow, if I could combine those two things, we can do something really cool here. Um, and listen, the director took the time to shoot the scenes the right way to get the right coverage in there, you know, and it all plays out on screen even to this day. Um, so about a year afterwards, I realized, Hey, this is, this has got some legs to it. Um, and it's really going to last. The other thing that's made it last and be so great are the fans, right? Listen, I mean, it's 25 years later, I'm still doing interviews and, and, and things about mortal Kombat with a fan base as loyal and dedicated as that. Like it's, it's hard to go wrong. And that's why, like, I'm happy to do interviews. I'm happy to, to sign autographs. I'm happy to do, you know, whatever, because the fans have kept this thing going for decades now. And I'm super, I'm humbled by it, and I'm super appreciative of it at the same time. Yeah, it's incredible. And you mentioned, obviously, that movie brought in people like Robin, Keith, TJ Storm, Hakeem, yourself, and countless others. How fun is it to be around those type of personalities where you guys obviously train and your friends or whatever, but there must be an extra level of excitement where you're always trying to playfully one-up each other. Well, that's it. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we call it excitement. It's more, uh, it's more ego, but because <laughs> when you're, listen, you're on a set with people who are at your level and or above, like it forces you to play up. Like there's no playing down. There's no bad day on set because uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to be shown up. 
by the next guy who's got the next scene coming up. So that that little it was a friendly rivalry and friendly competition. And listen, I you know all of us that were on that set we all get along and we're all friends. And listen, even Lyndon uh, Johnson or Lyndon Johnson, Lyndon Ashby, who played uh, John Cage, yeah. like he was so dedicated to the to the role and to the craft that you know he took a crash course in martial arts before filming started. But after we got done filming, he became my student for for a year and a half. Oh. He trained with me. We trained a couple days a week because he like he was so like enamored of what we were doing. You know, he saw what I was doing. He saw what Keith was doing, and he's like, "I want to learn to do that." So I go, "Okay, well, I have a school in Pasadena. It was right between where he he lived and I lived." So he trained with me for a year and a half. He got he got actually a little bit past the halfway point to black belt with me, and then he booked um, Teen Wolf, and he he got busy with other jobs and stuff like that. But to his credit, like he didn't give up just because the cameras were off. I like that. He kept training, he kept doing it. And, uh, you know, to, to this day, him and I are, are good friends. And he's, he's awesome, dude. I mean, arguably, there's two scenes in that first movie, the Keith Cook Robin fight. But the scene with you um, going with Johnny Cage, how fun was that? It kind of, what's the process? Did you have any input in terms of, I can do this, let's do, like, how do you, that's, that scene was very well done. Thank you. Thank you very much. I had, I did, I was fortunate enough to be able to get some input. Uh, Pat Johnson, who was the fight coordinator on that, is a great fight coordinator. He had coordinated the fights for, you know, all the Ninja Turtle movies, the first four Karate Kid movies. So he's very legendary in the in the business. And one of his working models is, A, getting the most talented people he can get, and B, letting them do what it is that they do to bring the character to life. In other words, Pat could have said, hey, I need you to do this kick and this punch his way, but he's smart and he knows, all right, well, Chris has a style. Keith's got a style. Let's bring that style to life. And then Pat just goes, all right, the fight needs to go in this direction. It needs to go here. These hits need to happen here. And then he lets you go off with the actor and, and put stuff together. You bring it back to him. He, you show it to him and he goes, okay, that looks good. Take that out. That looks good. Take that out. And we need to add this element here. So it's a very uh, creative process where he works with you rather than a dictatorship where he says dot, 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 dot. And that's one of the reasons why the fight scenes were able to come to life the way they were. Keith had a tremendous input in his fight scene. I had tremendous input in the fight scene. And so did Lyndon. Lyndon came up with, if in, if you're calling the fight scene, we put an Old West moment in the fight scene on purpose where he punches me, I take the hit, come back, I punch him. And we do that four times. So it was kind of an Old West cowboy thing. And the director was like, I don't know if that's going to work. And we're like, just let us do it. Just let us do it. And it plays off very well. It just kind of shows a, a mutual tough guy moment in the fight scene. The weapon that comes out of Scorpion's hand, is that based on a Forbes weapon that you guys would trade with? Like, what is that? It's based on a, a weapon called a kunai. And in the game, as you know, it's a spear. It's a kind of an iron chain that comes out. But in the movie, they animated it and made it into a, a living creature. Uh, but it is based off of that weapon. Gotcha. So... The other thing, you mentioned it briefly, and I, I had to look it up before because like, there's no way this is true. You, obviously, in Batman and Robin, you were George Clooney's stuntman. How did that come to be, and did you keep the suit? <laughs> I wish. I wish I kept the suit. Uh, I have no parts of the costume at all. It's weird. I thought you would have. No, I, I am not allowed to have any parts of the back. You're very strict about that on the, on the, on the set. Uh, the truth is... George Clooney and I are exactly the same height and have exactly the same chin. Okay, so how do they, how do you, that, that, how, I, I get the height part, you can, but the chin, are they looking specifically through like headshots for no, that jowl? It's, no, it's, it's kind of a joke. That was the director, uh, Joel Schumacher, when I met him for the first time, uh, Pat Johnson again, who I'd worked with on Mortal Kombat, right? It's not who you know, it's who knows you. Right. Pat got the job to do Batman and Robin. They needed a Batman double. George Clooney's double had been, his original double had been injured on a previous film and wasn't able to, to take part in the, you know, the, the fight scenes for Batman. So they needed someone. Pat goes, I got the perfect guy. Calls me up, says, I need you to come in and meet Joel Schumacher. So I came in and I met him and he walked up to me and he touched, and I didn't have a beard at that point. He touched my chin and he's like, you and George have the exact same chin. He never asked me to throw a kick or a punch or do anything, he goes, you're perfect. And I went, okay. Now, of course, we went into rehearsals and I had to show him, hey, I can actually do, you know, because Pat vouched for me. He's like, this is the guy. 
he will do stuff in this bat suit that you have never seen before. And, and uh, the directors wanted to meet and make sure we had the same look because, you know, they want to shoot close-ups and things like that. So uh, that's how that worked out. I actually had to back it up in the rehearsals. What was cool in rehearsals was I got to wear Val Kilmer's bat suit for rehearsals because he had done the previous movie. So what they did at that time was they took the suits from the previous movie and used them as stunt suits uh, to practice in. So they didn't use the, the what they call the, the camera suits, the camera ready suits, uh, so they didn't get messed up. How hard is it to adjust to training? Like, how heavy was the suit? How much did it restrict you in your movements? Probably one of the biggest challenges I had in working in fights uh, was wearing the bat suit. The bat suit is 35 pounds of skin tight rubber and leather. And it takes 30 to 40 minutes to put that thing on. And it takes three or four people to put it on. So it's not like you see in the movies. You don't just get into the bat suit. It is a process. And it is heavy and it gets hot fast. Matter of fact, the onset rule is you're not allowed to be in the suit for more than three hours because you get so dehydrated. There, there was a guy on set whose sole job was to hold an air conditioning tube on me so that I did not overheat between shots. And at the three hour point, they come to you and they go, you have to get out of the suit. And they would unscrew me and unbolt me. Uh, and my, the boots were full of water. They would turn, it's gross, but it would turn those boots upside down and water would just come out. You lose that much water weight. So it's uh, it was a, it was a really big challenge at the end of the day though, John, I'm going to be the first guy to tell you, it was probably the fucking coolest thing I've ever done in my life. Yeah. I can imagine it's such an iconic character that transcends all timelines and for you to be part of that history. Yeah. When I read it, I'm like, man, this is totally yeah, ridiculous. Look, the first thing that you do when they get you all bolted in and they tell, they tell you you're ready for set. The first thing that you do, is you run to the nearest mirror stand <laughs> there and you look at it and you say, I'm Batman. I'm Batman. And then you go to set. And so when you work, obviously on that set, there's a lot of stuff, men and women for the characters and the goons and stuff Batman has to fight. Is When it comes to choreography, is that something where the stunt coordinator, the people like yourself kind of get together, hey, we're going to do this? Like, or how involved were you with the coordination of the fight scenes? Months. We were on that project for months. Uh, the only the only disappointment that I have on the Batman film, besides it not, I mean, it performed well at the box office, but not as well as they anticipated. I loved it. Thank you. Uh, the only thing I'm disappointed at is they cut out, probably in my opinion, some of the greatest fight scenes that we've ever shot in the Batsuit. And they did it for a variety of reasons. I wish I could get that footage, but myself and the guy who doubled uh, as Robin, Clayton Barber, uh, we did some incredible, I mean, we in the botanical garden scene, we were in that that set for over a month. Wow. Doing fight scenes that you never see, like little five or 10 second clips. And one of the reasons why they cut a lot of that fight scene out wasn't because it wasn't good, because at that time, George Clooney was as yet an unproven big star. He'd done a few movies and just come off of ER. But if you go back and watch the movie, you'll see that it's more about Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy than it is. And even, even Batgirl, Alicia Silverstone, because Arnold, Uma, and right. Alicia were big stars, huge. Right. So I don't know if, if the studio didn't necessarily trust the fact that Clooney could carry the film or what, but there's way more footage of them than there necessarily is of and about Batman. Uh, so I think they had to cut it to put other scenes in with Arnold featuring him because he was, you know, right. is, is a major star. But it, it was that was the only disappointment. Listen, it was a, the budget for the film was over $100 million. It was the first time I worked on a film like that. Um, it was it was a fantastic experience. And, and you know, like, like I said, I'm probably one of maybe two dozen people on the planet that have ever worn the Batsuit. I love that. Yeah, I, I had read that Joel before he passed a couple of years ago. There was a, there was talk of um, after the Snyder thing kind of, kind of go over the new Snyder Cut of Justice League that these directors have these special cuts of movies unedited with all the back stuff. So it'd be kind of cool to actually see a lot of those fight scenes fleshed out. Yes, I would love to see that as well. And so, what other projects do you have coming up now in terms of anything movie related or? Is that something where you're really focusing on helping these kids? Uh, actually, both. So uh, it's, you know, you said earlier, what, what keeps you from being depressed or stressed out? It's the fact that I'm a, I'm a constantly in motion. So I have uh, actually two films awesome. that, uh, that are both ready to go post-COVID. Once we get out of this 
pandemic or they release some kind of vaccine. We've got two films. One, uh, I'm, I'm excited about both of them. One of them is going to give me the opportunity to work with one of my students who's also gone on to become a huge, huge star in his own right. And that's Jason David Frank, who from, from oh, the power. Oh, Creed Ranger? Yeah. Wow. He's my yeah. I, I taught how, him. how long have you taught him? Since he was 10 years old. Wow. Dude, he's top notch. Yeah, and listen, I here's a cool story about that. I got him the part in the Power Rangers because my agent called me and said, "Hey, they're they're doing this new TV show, something from Japan called Power Rangers. Do you have anybody that that's between like 15 and 18 that can play that age range that's good?" And I go, "I got a great I got a great kid." Cuz he was working for me. Jason was working for me. We were teaching together at my studio, and I got him the audition. And he called me, you know, a, a couple days later. He goes, "Sensei, I, I think I got the part. I'm going to do this TV show. And I go, that's awesome. Who's covering your shift at work today? <laughs> so, but he went on to do that and, and killed it. And, and, you know, he's, he's just become legendary. The challenge is we've never got a chance to work on film together. He's gone and done his thing. I've gone and done my thing. So we're going to do this film together. Hopefully we're going to shoot early spring of next year called legend of the white dragon, which is kind of a, a power ranger spinoff thing. Uh, and he and I will get to be on screen together for the very first time. So that's one of the projects. The other project is uh, a film franchise being put together by the original production team from the Mortal Kombat people. Wow. Uh, it's a film that's tentatively titled Raptor right now, which is the best way for me to explain it. It's uh, it's Lord of the Rings meets Matrix. Interesting. Yeah, it's a pretty cool sci-fi concept thing. Um, that uh, you know that thing gets made. That's and that they're you know they're not they're not talking about a one-off. They're talking about a three to four film franchise with uh, with video game turnoffs and, and things like that. So I'm very hopeful that that thing gets made because I, I have a major part in that film. That's awesome, and hopefully yeah. it does. How often do you keep in touch with prior students like Jay's? Like, is there? You must obviously your your work speaks for itself, but you must get a lot of messages from kids and people saying, "Hey, man, thank you for." saving my life or helping me learn to stay fit or you taught me that I could, I could fight off bullies. Like how is that, how often does it happen? And how rewarding is that for you? Well, I don't know if you can hear the pings, but it, because my, uh, I forgot to turn the pings off on my iPad, but it's uh, all the time, all the time. And listen, I do my best to respond to each and every fan request. I do my best to get back to every kid that ever reaches out to me. Uh, but my Instagram is like, it blows up on the daily um, Facebook, all the, the all the socials. It's really easy to find me. I don't make it hard to find me it's because I want to interact with the people. I want to help as many people as I can. And, and if there's fans out there, if I inspired to do martial arts, which I get tons of those fan mail letters, you know, I'm the happiest guy in the world because I believe that if everyone in the country studied martial arts for six months or a year, a lot of the freaking problems we have start to go away. Right. So let's cut finish up on your book here. I've read it a bunch of times and it's, it's while the content is very serious and there's a lot of heartbreak in this, in the sense of what goes on for these kids, the book is so easy to read. It's so easy to follow. It's, I definitely think every, if you're a parent, you should definitely have this book and read it and stuff. At what point did you have the confidence to put your name on a book like this in concept to have the world look at it? Well, like most things in my life, it was a challenge. Someone ch dared me essentially to to write it, and here's here's why. I was in uh, where was I? New York. I think I was in New York uh, when someone first said you should write a book, and because I've been traveling the country, teaching this clinic, teaching kids how to how to do this. But obviously, my goal is to impact. You know, like I say in the book, I want to help a million kids by the year 2025. And right now, probably 65,000 kids have gone through our clinic and our course. 2020 put a big kink in my numbers plan, but I think we can still get there. I wrote the book to help with that, right? Because I may not be able to come where you are right now, but you can get that book. And if that can get you on the path or if you can pull one thing out of it, and you're right, I wrote it for kids, but it's also for parents to help their kids overcome the challenges that they're having. So I, I wrote the book based on a challenge and a dare. Uh, and then I was in a group, I was in a mastermind business learning group where they said, you should write a book. And so those two things kind of collided. And, and I did that. I went through grade school, the nineties, and I saw Hazig dealt with it. I knew who bullies were, but I, every time I dealt with a bully, I'd tell my parents, whoever, and they'd be like, well, what'd you do? What'd you do about it? And it was never meant to 
we're not gonna we'll support you like obviously if you get beat up like we're gonna want to talk to like stuff like that but i got the er i got the feeling that hey they support me but this is on me to stop being bullied and i've noticed last decade or so it's we've transitioned to a society where bullies they seem like they're not being dealt with and that's why i love your book is because you can deal with them and and what do you find it heartbreaking that bullies have such a loud voice right now that there's not enough people out there standing up to them? Well, I'm going to tell I'm going to go against the status quo for a second. I don't think bullies have such a loud voice. I think that because of the easy access and all of the social media, that it's yeah. becoming more apparent to people who've been trying to brush it under the table or ignore it as if it's going to go away. Social media hasn't hasn't made society worse. It's just brought the worst of society to light for other people to see it. And that includes bullying. Right. So it's now, there's a more of an awareness than ever before. Like my messaging now is easier to get out because more people are like, yes, shit, this is happening to me too. So it, it, it's, it's been just as much helpful as people think it's been hurtful. And parents that, you know, one of the, and again, I'm, I'm a parent. I don't know if you're a parent, but uh, parents just need to do two things that are super important. Listen and watch because you know your kid better than anybody else on this planet. When you see behavior changes, when you see withdrawals, when you see grades start to drop, something's going wrong. And it's not necessarily because they're playing a fucking video game. There's other factors that go along with that. And, you know, I, I don't mean to curse and stuff, but I get so No, happy. I love it. Yep. And you got to listen. And then there's the other group of parents who blame themselves. Oh, it's my fault. I didn't raise my kid right. There, there can't be anything farther from the truth. It's not your fault if your kid's getting bullied. It's just some shit that happens. So by listening to your kids, by watching them and understanding the cues, obviously I'm going to do shameless plug by reading the tips I give you in the book or listen, I'm not the only guy in the game. There's, there's, there's dozens of websites that can help you help your child overcome the challenges that they're facing and the adversity that's popping up in their life. And the, and the, the final part of that is the answer isn't the classic 1950s, just punch the bully in the nose, son. And right. Hey, right. <laughs> if you don't know how to punch, you're going to break your fucking hand and B, if you miss, you're going to get your ass double kicked. So that's not always the answer. Sometimes it is. Listen, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes that's exactly what needs to happen. But if you don't know the warning signs, if you don't know the danger signs, if you don't know the what and the when, that's a huge mistake to make as well. Which is why this book is so great because it lays out all those scenarios and you could kind of – okay, you can punch the guy, but this is what you should do. This is how you should punch. This is how – but then you go into the stretching and the breathing and the healthy eating. Have you always been into – Obviously, the fitness comes with martial arts, but like the healthy eating, I know a lot of people that are premier athletes, but they eat like trash. And so how did you kind of settle on, hey, if you eat healthy and eat clean, it can benefit you that much more? Well, I'll give you an easy analogy to think about. You're familiar with NASCAR. Yes. Okay. NASCAR and Formula One racing cars are cars just like that are on the street. But if I took one of those cars to a gas station and put regular gas in that tank, those cars would break down in moments, in minutes. They wouldn't run. Right. They run on a high-performance fuel because they're high-performance machines. They look like a car, but they're not a car. Our bodies are the exact same way. We are high-performance machine, and what we feed it, what we put in here, happens. Diabetes, high blood pressure, heart attack, stroke, those are diseases normally associated with adults that have bad eating habits or genetic predispositions for it. But those four things I just said, the rise in childhood incidence of those four things has quadrupled over the last 15 years. It's because of diet and lack of exercise. Those two components together are what's happening. So if I can educate people or help them, and listen, I'm not saying go vegan. I'm not, which, you know, right. I, I've done that as well. I try, I wanted to try all these different diets and things that are out there. There's nothing wrong with going vegan, but I'm not saying like if you're going to McDonald's and Pizza Hut and Domino's and In-N-Out Burger every day, you're going to get sick, right? You're not feeding yourself. And again, I'm not here to tell 
I love in California, In and Out is like the best hamburger place in the world. Right. I, and and once or twice a month, man, I'm going to get me a double double with grilled onions, animal style, all day long. But it's not all I eat. You know what I mean? And of course, I'm working out. I'm constantly in motion and moving. So it's just a balance. You find a balance. And that's that's the thing. And again, for kids, kids aren't in charge of their diet. Mom and dad are. Yep. And if they don't have those habits for themselves, well, whatever they do manifests on on your children, right? We're we're the super soakers and our kids are the sponges. So it's it's they got to take care of them first and then they can take care of their kids better on the on the eating side of it. So no, that's awesome. You're on Twitter, you're on Instagram, Facebook. If someone wants to buy your book, do they go to your website or can we go to Amazon and just look up Bullyproof and how do we Go to, go to Amazon, look at Bullyproof Fitness, or type in my name in Amazon. It'll be there. You can get it. Um, we're doing a, a special sale on the book until the end of the year. And here's the other thing about the book that people may or may not know. I don't keep any money from the sale of the book. I donate all the money from the, pro, the proceeds of the book, You know, obviously minus the cost of printing. The, the proceeds from the book go to charities. Like I give back. I don't make my money off the book. I'm trying to get my message. I make my money at my martial arts studios. I make money when I do movies. Uh, but the proceeds from the sale of the book go to different charities, whether it's the Kids Smart Foundation or, or the Make-A-Wish Foundation, LA Food Bank. We're doing a, a kickathon this weekend oh, to, nice. to raise money for the Frontline Workers and First Responders Fund. So I'm a, I'm a big proponent of giving back to the communities that we serve uh, and that have served us so well. I love that. Well, I want to thank you, Chris, for your time and uh, great stories and uh, what you're doing for these kids and through your Red Dragon Karate is amazing. And I want you to keep it going. Right on, man. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mercedes Nickel, four-time Winter Olympian and host of Dropping In, a podcast with Mercedes. This is a podcast where I interview a bunch of different people. I get the good, the bad, and the ugly, as well as I share my stories along the way. Now you can drop in at droppingin.com or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube. I'll see you soon. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network.